Welcome to Navigating Consciousness. I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and this is a podcast of my talks and conversations. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcatcher. It really helps. Thank you. Um, we've used the word fields in our title, uh, fields of mind and body. And Rupert, you use uh, the word field often. You talk about morphic fields. It's always seemed to me that whether um, that word is used by orthodox scientists or or unorthodox scientists, it's rather mysterious. Um, mm. That you know, field implies action and awareness at a distance, and how that happens um, always seemed rather mysterious to me. So I'd be interested in your concept of what a field is. Well, fields are really souls updated, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> that's why they sound mysterious. Um, the, in, for the ancient Greeks, magnets had souls. They attracted other magnets because they had a soul. That's how they explained it. The whole universe had a soul that kept everything in place, the stars and the planets. The souls were abolished from science by the 17th century revolution, the mechanistic revolution. But magnetic attraction and electric attraction and repulsion didn't go away. And so they remained a terrible problem for Newtonian physics. And so Faraday in the 1840s introduced this new concept of fields for magnetic and electric phenomena uh, to explain actions at a distance um, and the way they could influence each other through space. And then, of course, the question arose, what are fields made of? What are they? And Faraday himself didn't know. He said um, they could be one of two things. Either they could be what he called modifications of mere space. In other words, patterns in space and that matter arose from space. That was his preferred hypothesis. Or they could be subtle matter, um, the ether. And that was the idea that appealed to most people in the 19th century. So they were then thought to be made of subtle matter, the ether, which took up forms or patterns. Einstein then showed the ether didn't exist um, and dropped it from his, in his special theory of relativity. So fields became modifications of mere space again. Then the gravitational field became space itself or space-time itself. Um, and then and quantum fields are fields which are patterns in space. Again, the vibrating patterns of energy in, in quantum fields give electrons, protons, and so on. And so the idea came about that you've got these spatial patterns of several kinds, gravitational, quantum, electromagnetic, which organize energy in vibratory patterns. In the 1920s, the idea of morphogenetic fields was put forward in living organisms, fields that organize living things, arm fields to organize arms, leg fields to organize legs. But then again, the same question arose, what are they, what are they made of? And this is still a problem for all of science, as you say. Um, even regular fields, the conventional view is to explain them in terms of a primal unified field with 10 or 11 dimensions that mysteriously curl up to give the fields we know. But how that works, no one really knows. So I'm right in thinking that this is all fairly strange. It's all fairly strange. <laughs> <laughs> and then when it comes down to it, I mean, whether you call fields lines of force, it's still, it's just pushing the explanation back further, and, and it winds up in, in to me, uh, something rather mysterious. Well, it is. It's like, you know, when people used to criticize people's cosmologies, you know, the lady who said well, the world rests on a turtle, and then right. someone says, well, what's the turtle resting? She said, it's turtles all the way down. Well, <laughs> 
with science does the same thing. You say it all, it's all explained by fields, and you say, what are those made of? It's fields all the way down, back to the primal unified field. Mm-hmm. It actually only gets through two layers, the regular ones and the unified field. That's uh, totally hypothetical. Now, in uh, some of the phenomena that you're interested in, um, that might be relegated to the area of psychic phenomena, for example, um, we can invoke fields of consciousness yes. uh, to explain these. Yes. But I think that the fields, the idea of fields of consciousness, in my mind, arises from the fields of the body. Um, morphogenetic fields are fields of the body, primarily. They're to do with morphogenesis, the development of form um, in embryos and in growing plants. And morphogenetic fields... The, the properties they have, they shape the form of the developing organism. They shape it in accordance with goals or attractors. They have ends, goals, or attractors. So they draw things towards an end or a goal or a final form. And um, so they, they have these shaping properties. Um, they have polarity. Um, and they have a holistic property, which is central to the idea of all fields. All fields are intrinsically holistic. That's one of the key features. You can't cut the North Pole off a magnet and say, okay, here's a North Pole. Because what happens when you do that is the bit of magnet becomes a whole magnet with a North and a South Pole. And living organisms also have this kind of wholeness. When you cut a willow tree into little bits, each bit can regenerate into a new tree. So it's like cutting a magnet into little bits. Each bit has a whole field. And each bit of a willow tree, or any cutting, has the potential to give a whole plant. So fields are always holes. You can't divide them into parts. And so the idea of a morphogenetic field of an organism, on the one hand, gives you a potential explanation for how the form develops in the first place. Secondly, for how the form is maintained. And thirdly, for how it heals and regenerates after damage. And therefore, all organisms have this capacity to heal and to regenerate. And this, according to morphogenetic field theory, is inherent in the fields themselves. It's a property of the fields. So healing, wholeness, and regeneration are just built into this field concept. So it seems to me a very natural candidate as an integrative factor in trying to understand different medical systems. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the principles that I've observed in medical practice is that um, if, if a person or an organism that is ill or off balance is in the presence of another one that is healed and whole, and that increases the chance that the first one will move in that direction. I think this is a principle that's also been... Uh, you know, it's applied in many systems of therapy. It certainly was early, early on in psychiatry that a, a healed mind, a whole mind, could catalyze a therapeutic movement in an unbalanced mind. But it's rather the opposite of the practice where hospitals <laughs> and psychiatric hospitals have right. lots of people who aren't very well put together, which presumably retards the healing <laughs> process. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've in the past we've talked about um, examples. Uh, I remember talking here about finding four-leaf clovers, finding mushrooms, mm. uh, of of ways that being in the presence of someone who perceives a certain aspect of reality uh, enables you to see it or to experience mm. it. And I think this is very relevant to um, scientific research because it suggests that the belief system of the experimenter. Uh, may be a very important uh, influence on the outcomes 
Well, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, it's well known in experimental research that you have experimental effects. Experimenters tend to see what they want to see, uh, which is why people do experiments under blind conditions. Um, but I think when it comes to the fields, going back to the idea of fields as an integrative concept, is there anybody in the realm of integrative medicine trying to produce a theory that would bring together acupuncture and you know, yoga theories and so forth into a unified theory. Is there any attempt to do that? You know, I think uh, some, some of my writings, I've tried to do that by suggesting mm. that healing is an intrinsic aspect of nature. That is that mm. there is a universal principle of seeking balance or restoration of balance when balance is disturbed. I mean, that that's, seems to me one well-known example of that is homeostasis that mm. we observe in physiology. You disturb an organism and it pushes back in the other direction. Uh, so if that is an intrinsic aspect of nature, um, then I think a lot of what we do in the way of medical interventions, if they work, are simply working with that aspect of things. Yeah. I think a lot of treatments that we do actually interfere with that or hinder mm. it. Um, at, but at best, they work to, to catalyze that reaction. So it seems to me that, that um, any therapeutic system uh, if it's consistent with the body's wisdom, uh, can move it, help move it in that direction. Mm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the placebo response would be an example of this. And yes. What, what do you think then of Darwinian medicine, these people who try to explain <laughs> medicine in evolutionary terms? I think it's interesting. I mean, they come up with, with interesting concepts that often mm. um, haven't been thought of. That is, what is the reason why some diseases have been maintained in populations uh, mm. by genetics, for example. Uh, I think the explanation for why diabetes is so frequent makes a great deal of sense, that, this, that these genes uh, were a selective advantage at times when people were mostly starving or experiencing feast and famine eating, yeah. and now they work against us. Mm. Um, so I think it, it, it is a way of, I think it's a useful perspective that isn't often looked at mm. in, in uh, medical practice. Well, I don't know. I don't know if we've discussed before Humphrey's theory of the placebo response. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? The idea that the placebo response. What's interesting about it is not that you get this boost of healing when it's released, but the fact you don't get it beforehand, which means the body's holding back <laughs> its healing capacity until uh, the organism feels in a secure enough position to let the healing go because it takes energy and, and resources to heal. And if you throw everything into ev any disease you get, what happens if you get another one or another challenge? Uh, which, by the way, is why uh, one of the best pieces of practical advice you can give people who are sick is that they should rest or curtail energy expenditures because mm. it makes more energy available to the body for healing. Mm. Um, I think uh, I see a shift in the way placebo responses are being looked at today. There's mm. there's active research in that area. Yes. Um, it's being taken much more seriously than it was. I think this is a good thing. Yes. And one of the most interesting findings that's come out very recently is that um, placebo responses are associated with particular patterns of brain activity. And um, you know, this touches on a topic we wanted to talk about. Uh, I've been very interested in that. This is just in the past couple of years that we ha now have new techniques, uh, PET scans and functional MRIs that allow us to make images of living brains. We never had this technology before. And suddenly um, we are able to uh, correlate 
states of consciousness, hmm. uh, states of awareness, subjective experiences, placebo responses with patterns, distinctive patterns of brain activity. And this uh, is important for several reasons. First of all, it makes these experiences real to objective materialists who previously didn't believe in them. Uh, when I was writing about altered states of consciousness in the natural mind, this was back in 1971, 72, it was very easy for neuroscientists and hardcore scientists to dismiss this whole realm, which included mystical experiences, drug experiences, hypnosis, as all being at best unreal and at worst uh, fantasies that people were making up. And they really can't do that anymore. You know, now there are, there are objective correlates in neurology that that make this real in a way mm. that materialists can grasp. Um, the other thing is it, it allows us to document claims made by people who have are well experienced in these realms. For example, there is a center for uh, mind-body research at the University of Wisconsin. And the main researcher there, Richard Davidson, has done a lot of work in the past two years with Tibetan monks who are very advanced meditators and has been able to show um, – different patterns of activity and uh, increased size of particular areas of the deep brain and that this looks to be a great advantage and mm. uh, that not only does this correlate with their claims of, of certain subjective experiences – but it, I think it also opens up possibilities of new therapeutic approaches to common mental emotional disorders. Um, it, it looks like a very promising area of research to me that, mm. that changes the whole game of mind-body interactions. Well, I think so too, and I, it's certainly interesting. I mean, it can easily lend itself to a kind of reductionist approach, can't it? The, sure. You know, these Tibetans think they're having mystical experiences of cosmic bliss. But, but it's actually, just activity it's just, in the singulate gyrus. Yes. Right, right, right. In fact, that has happened, as you may know, that uh, there, there have been people writing just also in the past year about uh, near-death experiences in just this way. Yes. Uh, that this is, in fact, just some kind of of uh, random activity in certain brain centers being starved for oxygen uh, as the brain dies. Um, so that it is possible. On the other hand, the good side of this that I see is at, with placebo responses, for example, mm -hmm. is that there now is, it, it's not possible to say that a placebo response is a patient acting to please the therapist or faking something, mm. uh, that there is a real correlate with neurological activity mm. there. But I think one, I was having an argument with a neuroscientist two or three weeks ago, um, and he said, well, now we've found that mystical experience involves these changes in the brain, and, and so it's just a matter of brain activity. And I said, well, you know, we're looking at a tree now. We were talking outdoors. I said, we're looking at a tree now. There's changes in your brain happening because you're seeing that tree. So if we have electrodes on your skull and we measure all the changes in the brain because you're seeing the tree, does it mean the tree's not actually out there? Is it just <laughs> in your brain? And, of course, he had to admit that that didn't prove anything. So I think, I think it's important for, to emphasize that these changes in the brain don't prove that it's just in the brain because right. otherwise the, all our experience would be just in the brain. You'd be just in my brain and so would everybody else in this room, which wouldn't be a very plausible theory, really, would it? And you'd have a very crowded brain. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, have you got any ideas about how this kind of brain imaging research could be used more constructively or more interestingly? 
Well, I, th- I think, um, as I said, one area is documenting uh, neurological correlates of hmm. experiences that have been elusive or mysterious. Hmm. And I think it, what I see in placebo research is this has been a huge change. It really hmm. shifts the conversation of taking this seriously. And, and why that's important is that in medicine, the, the dominant view is that placebo responses are nuisances, that the, the way you hear people talking about this is, you know, how do we know that's not just a placebo response. And the most interesting word there is just. Uh, Or we have to rule out the placebo response when in fact what we should be trying to do is to rule it in. That's the meat of of medicine. You want to make that happen more often. It's, It's the pure healing response unmixed up with the direct effects of treatment, which are likely to be toxic. So the best medicine is the maximum placebo response produced by the minimum intervention. That's Mm. ideal. And um, I think that the discomfort of doctors with using this is that they think placebos mean that you're tricking the patient Mm. and they don't want to be in that role. So, Mm. So we need to give them a different way of thinking about it. Mm. And if you can see this as a healing response activated through particular neural mechanisms, Mm. that's a much more uh, useful way of conceiving of it. Well, I think Humphrey's evolutionary theory of it helps, and so do other evolutionary theories, because people can see it's natural, it's normal, it's part of biology, it's built in by evolution. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've th- when I was talking uh, recently to Daniel Siegel at UCLA, who d- works on brains and behavior and psychology, and his take on the um, work on meditation and uh, these changes in the brain of people who are meditating and in altered states of consciousness of a kind of religious or mystical kind is that the centers activated are similar to those involved in attachment behavior. He's worked particularly on attachment in children. You know how young children form attachments to their parents. And certain parts of the brain develop in, in particular ways when proper normal attachments are formed. And he thought that the um, areas activated showed that religious or mystical experience is similar to attachment behavior in young children, which I thought was a rather interesting take. He did then, he was toying with this idea, was it going to be a nothing but conclusion? That shows mystical experience is nothing but a kind of reversion to infantile states of mind. (laughs) Or uh, a more interesting take that, the, the most people who pray or meditate have a sense that they are actually connected and attached to a higher form of consciousness, God, or whoever they're praying to, the higher spirit. Or, uh, so uh, in that context, it wouldn't be surprising that there was an attachment uh, type of behavior, um, a, ty- a kind of response in the brain. Um, he then asked me how I prayed myself, and so I told him. And he said that sounded like well-balanced attachment type uh, responses. Um, So, I mean, it did seem to fit quite well, but it doesn't, again, necessarily lead itself to the reductionist conclusion, it's nothing but, but actually opens up a very interesting set of parallels, which most religious people would be quite comfortable with. I mean, after all, Christians start the main Christian prayer, Our Father. So, you know, if you've got uh, attachment behavior that's related to parents, you know, it fits totally. Um, do you want to say something about any, and do you have any further data from your experiments that are going on out there that you want to share? Well, the main thing I've been doing in the last year is uh, I've been continuing my research on telepathy. And I've been des- designing and developing automated experiments. I have one 
on the internet already. But I've got a whole raft of other tests coming along, a text message telepathy test, which is running in Britain. It works on text messages, and it's aimed mainly at teenagers who use text messages more than grown-ups. Um, I've, I've got a morphic resonance online test being developed at the moment. Um, and I have a whole series of automated tests. Some are on my website right now. Um, why I'm doing this is to try and make these tests much more um, available to people. I've also set up a new way of getting tests done. I've had a work scholar program, an idea that arose out of um, discussions here last year at Hollyhock and on Cortez Island. Um, we had a kind of brainstorming session, and Noel, Dana's daughter, brought up the idea of doing them in schools. And this seemed to me a very good idea. And I started a work scholar program, so I now have people in schools and colleges. They get uh, paid for doing this, not very much, but something. They recruit 20 people to do the tests. They get a certificate at the end of research experience, and they do it under my supervision. And it's proved a highly effective way of broadening this research. I've now had, I think, something like 20 or 30 work scholars. Uh, have tw About 20 have finished, and the others are still doing it. And so I've extended this testing pro process um, much more widely. And it may go into a completely new level, because um, when I gave a workshop at Esalen recently, uh, a senior executive from Yahoo came to my workshop, and they're very keen to put some of these automated tests on a Yahoo platform, which would mean instead of hundreds of people doing them, it might be millions. So these this kind of test could move in a completely different level. And so I'm hoping that by a sheer quantity of data and accessibility of doing this, if they continue to give the positive, significant results they have so far, the question of does telepathy exist will cease to be a question because the data would be so overwhelming. So I'm hoping that that could change the situation we're in at present. All right, well, this, this touches on a, 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 another subject area that we'd like to get into is how do you change people's minds and concepts, especially in science and medicine? And... Uh, a point of difference that we've had in the past is that I know that Rupert is a very committed experimentalist, and he's also convinced that if you produce this kind of data, um, that then people change their minds. And uh, <laughs> my experience is that that's not how it works, is that um, people's minds are set, and that if data comes in that is in conflict with that those set concepts, they ignore it or belittle it or ridicule it. And I think we both run into this all the time. We do, yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and therefore, you know, a question for us, I particularly face this in, in medicine, uh, where for many people refuse to believe that the mind can influence the body or that um, natural remedies can ha have any inherent uh, wisdom or anything superior to an isolated chemical, uh, or that there could possibly be anything um, uh, that could work in a system like Chinese medicine. Mm. You know, how do you change these kinds of uh, of set beliefs? There is, I mean, a very cynical view um, that was, uh, you know, that says that uh, uh, well, it was said about physics, particularly that physics changes funeral by funeral. So, you know, one possibility <laughs> is that. You know, the older generation with these beliefs die off. But I'm afraid, looking at the world today, there are a lot of younger people coming up who have the same kind of rigid uh, belief mm. systems. So, you know, a major question is how do, you, how do you change this? Is it a matter of just showing them data that telepathy exists in these experiments? Um, 
So what do you think about that? Well, I agree with you that people who are diehard scientific fundamentalists are not going to change. These are dogmatic people with a kind of rigid belief system. There's no hope of changing them. But I think that the best way to bring about change is to recognize that they're actually probably a small minority within science and possibly even medicine. And if they're a minority, at the present they give the impression of being the majority orthodox view. I don't think they're any more a majority than communists were in Russia before the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, as soon as the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union collapsed, where were all these communists? I mean, still, some are still there, but it wasn't that everybody believed that. And so we have a kind of Stalinist mentality within the sciences, a kind of uni idea of uniform belief. I think the best way is to encourage the large numbers of scientists who think differently to have the courage to say so. And that's where the coming out model yeah. uh, is important. Yeah, I think, I think that's, a, that's a good one. Uh, and I'll give, you, I'll give you two examples, and then you can talk more about the coming out model. Um, my... Uh, uh, counterpart at Columbia University, Freddie Cronenberg, who directs a center of um, alternative medicine there uh, that's been in existence about 12 years now. When she uh, first what was there, this was the result of a, of a donor, wealthy donor giving a large grant to Columbia to establish such a center. And there was a vigorous opposition from much of the medical faculty uh, about doing this. Um, and she circulated a written questionnaire to the uh, medical faculty at Columbia, which asked questions about experiences with alternative medicine. A very high percentage, I think it was in the, uh, somewhere 70, 80 percent uh, of people in a written response said that they'd had very positive experiences with uh, many forms of alternative medicine in themselves or immediate family members. And a number of them noted that they would never mention this uh, to their colleagues. Um, so uh, that's one interesting thing. And another one that I can give you that I had a direct experience of, uh, this is now about four years ago, I was asked to speak to the um, Council of Deans of the American Association of Medical Colleges, which is the deans of all 150 medical schools in the U.S., and I talked about integrative medicine and the need for radical reform of medical education and you know, all of that. And uh, I was very interested to see where the resistance was in this group. And I sensed three very different kinds of resistance. The first, uh, the first was uh, a feeling of just enormous resentment that medicine was being pulled in this direction by consumers. Um, the, the feeling was that, and one dean from Harvard actually said this in so many words, that medical education should only change as a result of advances in medical research. And the fact that consumers were demanding that doctors be educated in nutrition and mind-body interactions and so forth really annoyed them. Uh, the second kind of resistance that I sensed was a feeling that this is a slippery slope, that if you begin teaching about herbs in medical schools, next you'll be teaching about crystals, and then the 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 foundations of Western rationalism will crumble. Uh, you know, my feeling is that's the whole point of what we're trying to <laughs> But also know that we're trying to teach people to discriminate between what's sensible out there and what's not and so forth. But the third, the third kind of resistance, which I what was exactly what we're talking about, was fear of censure by peers. And the way that I saw that was quite dramatic in this group is that the day after my talk, there was a panel um, I was on at the head of NCAM, the, our NIH Center for um, Complementary Alternative Medicine, and um, another um, 
a Brian Berman who heads a center at the University of Maryland and the discussion was moderated by the dean of the University of Maryland Medical School and when we were finished he turned to this audience of deans and said I thought rather flippantly well how many of you are ready to start teaching integrative medicine one hand tentatively went up and was immediately pulled down but three <laughs> days later a written questionnaire was circulated to this group and about 80 90 percent I think said they were in favor of moving medical education in this direction so that's very interesting. And if, yes. in fact, there is this kind of, of um, er, fundamentally irrational fear, I mean, or at least it's false fear that, you know, you think you're the only one or you're isolated and everybody else out there is going to jump on you if you enunciate these views, then that's a more practical matter of how we can change that. Well, exactly. And my experience is exactly the same. When I give talks in scientific institutes on morphic resonance or on telepathy, um, I find that people are usually quite tentative to about saying anything in the question period. You know, they usually look to the senior guy to see if he's going to be, if he's going to sneer or if he's going to be positive, and they're, they're very tentative. But afterwards, person after person comes up to me and says, "You know, I'm really interested in this. I've had these telepathic experiences myself, or I've always been interested in memory and nature, and and lots of people are open-minded, but they don't tell their colleagues." So. That's, I think the best way we could promote change would be to find a way of liberating people within the scientific world to speak freely. They'd have so much more fun, and science would be so much more fun and so much more interesting. So the question is how to do it. Well, certainly what, the, it, what I see in, in medicine, in doctors and their families, is there is nothing like having an experience yourself hmm. that changes your, the way you think. So for people that have had a, had a positive experience, usually in themselves, in a loved one, a close friend hmm. uh, that has had some dramatic um, positive effect of an alternative treatment that you know was something they weren't taught in medical. So there's nothing that that is terrific hmm. uh, that that they are then convinced. Then the next question is whether they're willing to talk about that hmm. uh, in their professional settings. And I think there it's a matter of you know that there's work to be done to try to change the culture of medicine and science so hmm. that people feel safe to discuss their hmm. experiences. Well, I think that's what I think we need to try and do. And I've found with take telepathy, most people have had these experiences, including most scientists. And in recent lectures I've given, for example, at the University of Dresden, at the University of Bi Institute of Biology, when I was talking about telephone telepathy, I asked those who'd had this experience, thinking of someone who then rings, um, to raise their hands. And I told them that surveys had shown that about 80% of normal Germans have this response, because I've done surveys in Germany. And so they wouldn't feel they were freakish. In fact, <laughs> by not raising their hands, they'd make themselves seem very abnormal if they really had had this experience. Um, and about 80 or 90% of the audience raised their hands. They've had these experiences. So scientists are mostly quite normal people. So they've had these experiences. Many of them have had either themselves or close family members helped by um, integrative medicine. So then the question is, how, do we, how can things be changed so they feel free to talk about it? Because at the moment they don't. And that's how this attitude comes up of this rigid orthodoxy, this rejection and fear. And I think the revolution is, it's, the question is really sociological. It's a kind of trans group transformation that's needed. Here at Hollyhock, there's 
lots of experts in group transformation. I only wish some could be parachuted into a science lab somewhere as a specimen experiment to see what happens. If these transformative, liberating processes, the power of hope for chemists, something like that, um, what would happen if that actually happened in a science lab? I think the results would be extremely instructive and positive. That's my prediction. There's another, I mean, another thing, thing that I see happen in science is that people may have these experiences, they may even talk about them, but they keep them in a box and don't let them influence their way of thinking about the world at large hmm. or the field that they're working with. Hmm. Well, that's true, but that's partly because then we come to the bigger question, the funding structure and who sets what's possible to, what it's possible to do within science. And that's another very big problem because scientists are very constrained by what will, what will be funded. But I think that if a wider discussion got going within the world of science, that would really help. For example, I, one, as you may know from previous conversations, you may remember I'm interested in the idea that the sun may be conscious, that yes. the stars may right. have minds, that, that why Rupert. consciousness should be conferred. <laughs> 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 why right. consciousness should be confined to human brains or even no. to brains in general. I mean, why should we assume this? Now, I've tried this out on astronomers and cosmologists, and several have said to me, yeah, you know, I've always wondered that. You know, do these stars have minds? You know, but, of course, I can't discuss that with my colleagues. But, you see, what, how much more fun it would be if people in cosmology and astronomy departments were discussing that. What would it be like if the galaxy had a mind and if we brought mental processes into... Or is that a way of thinking about a gravitational field is a kind of awareness, some sort of consciousness that physical bodies are aware of each other. <laughs> exactly. And the way in which fields may be associated with consciousness. I mean, the materialist view is that the electromagnetic fields in our brains are somehow associated with our consciousness right. in a way that's not explained. But if consciousness is associated with electromagnetic fields in the brain, why not in the sun? And why not in nature in general? And I think that that touches on probably the most basic uh, paradigmatic uh, conflict or alternative way of seeing things, that the dominant view in medicine, in science, is that consciousness is a product of electrochemical reactions in the brain. Uh, an alternative view is that consciousness is primary. And that consciousness may organize matter into the tissue of the brain. Mm. Or both could be. Or both, both are associated. Right. And science is full of speculations along these lines. I mean, one of my favorite ones is Newton's theory of gravitation, um, where he didn't have the idea of a field, but he had the idea of absolute space as its medium. Mm -hmm. And he thought that absolute space was the sense organ of God, that God to know where everything was in the universe had to have a means of knowing and that absolute space was his sense organ. So he'd know exactly where everything was because it was in space and where it was in space. And so he had the idea of the divine mind being extended throughout the whole of the universe, knowing where everything was. So everything was within the divine mind and every movement and change was automatically registered within it. Well, I think we could have some rather grand views of gravitational fields today and electromagnetic fields that had something of that quality. And, and I think to bring this view in, in my field of medicine, I see as very important because in so many instances, I see that um, 
that healing is initiated by changes in the realm of consciousness. Mm. Uh, that something happens there, mm. and then there is this sequence of events that produces changes in the in the physical organism. And if you don't, if you discount that as a relevant variable, mm. um, then you've cut yourself off from a whole. Uh, a whole series of interventions and technologies that are out there uh, that are available for working at the level of consciousness. But this leads to another question, for which we may not have time. Let's just see. Um, well, at least hmm? five minutes. Well, um, which is that human minds obviously involve consciousness as we know it, but animal minds involve some kind of mental organization we don't understand very well. And the whole question of integrative medicine for animals seems to me very interesting because you know, acupuncture, homeopathy, all these things have been tried on various animals by holistic vets. Some of them claim success in these areas. And one could say that the healing capacity of the animal, which like us depends on the intrinsic healing capacities of the body, I would think mediated through the morphogenetic field. Um, the animals have very similar processes to us. Um, and their minds may be involved too, which means that um, a whole parallel set of investigations could be going on in the veterinary realm, um, where some of the standard placebo arguments wouldn't really apply. Well, the same thing is said about children and infants. Uh, homeopaths like to make much of the fact that uh, there, there is a great record of clinical success of using homeo homeopathy in infants and children. Mm. And there is the assumption that these can't be placebo responses because infants and children don't have minds. Um, I, I, that's, that's a questionable <laughs> assumption. And then the other, the other thing that's often not considered is that in a medical interaction with an infant or a child or with an animal, often the human that is bonded to the infant or child or the animal is present. And so the placebo mechanism may work through that mm. axis of that connection of consciousness between mm. the, the therapist, the human, and then the child or mm. infant or the animal. Very possible. And you know, then it would mean that the the idea of the placebo response is unleashed when an organism feels secure right. would apply in the case of animals if they feel they're in, being cared for. Yeah, on a practical level, there are a lot of holistic vets out there. The ones that I've had contact with, uh, some of them are very good and mm. have better track records uh, than regular vets. I mean, mm. some of that may be that just not using you know, a lot of the pharmaceuticals that uh, are heavily used in veterinary medicine that as with human pharmaceuticals, you know, only a small percentage of which may be really mm. good. <laughs> the, the, perhaps we should take up in relation to placebo effect the question of outcome trials, which yes. we discussed last year. For those who weren't here last year, we, uh, we were discussing the ways medical research is done. And the, one of the standard ways is the clinical double-blind placebo-controlled trial where you compare drug X against a blank pill to see whether it works better than the blank pill. But this doesn't really tell you very much uh, that you might want to know. For example, if you have lower back pain, you don't want to know whether pill X is better than a blank pill. You want to know whether to go to an osteopath, a chiropractor, an acupuncturist, a homeopath, or of all the many different treatments are available, which might be the best. An outcome trial would involve taking people with, say, lower back pain or cold sores or migraine headaches, um, to sending a, a sample of people at random to different treatment methods, 
homeopaths or acupuncturists, osteopaths, whoever physiotherapists, whoever claimed to be able to treat it, they could be compared on a level playing field. So they all got an equal chance. And then you just see what works. What's the outcome? And, and this is really urgently what's needed now as our healthcare systems are crashing in uh, both the U.S. and Canada, as we really need to know what works and what the costs of what works are. Uh, so this is the kind of research that we need. We need to know, compare regular treatments against integrative packages of treatment that include alternative medicine, lifestyle change, and so forth, and to compare outcomes in terms of effectiveness, costs, and so forth. And the research community isn't doing these studies. Uh, the research community is stuck in looking at uh, double-blind trials of single interventions. And we don't need more of that information. It's not helpful to us mm -hmm. right now in guiding these big decisions that we make about how to move healthcare. And a, a big question is, how do we get this kind of outcomes research done? It's, it's, so, it, huh. Well, my thought, my thought is to go to the private sector uh, because uh, corporations in uh, the U.S. are absolutely crippled by healthcare costs. So there's extreme motivation to, to find better solutions. And they're not bound by ideology. So I think there's a possibility of having corporations or creative partnerships between corporations and government set up at least some of these pilot outcome trials in areas like you pick a condition – with back pain might be a good one that absorbs a lot of healthcare dollars and and uh, causes a lot of problems and then compare standard approaches to integrative approaches. So uh, I'm working to try to make some of that happen. Mm -hmm. It's a tough road though because the other the other problem you run into is that researchers don't think in terms of complexity, that they, they think in terms of studying single interventions. And if you tell them you want to look at a whole package of, you know, say for chronic back pain, you want to have a person on an exercise regimen and you want to give them an anti-inflammatory herbal mixture and do some kind of mind-body technique, they, it's very hard for them to get their heads around studying a complex package of interventions that might differ from individual to individual. Mm. But still, since science is based on the principle of comparison, if you compare that with the yes, regular then standard you can, right, feature, then sure. you've got a proper scientific experiment that fits exactly. every standard model, exactly. standard statistics. So it is frustrating this hasn't happened. So how do you think a further push could I help? I think the long-range solution is that we need a new generation of researchers who think in, in terms of complexity and understand that, you, that this is what the way – you do research when you want to find out how to move policy. I think in the short term, as the economic um, crisis in healthcare becomes more dire, you know, which it surely will day by day, that then the incentive uh, to do this kind of work will get become greater and greater. Because I think the really the big promise of integrative medicine is that it can lower healthcare costs by bringing lower cost treatments into the mainstream that produce outcomes that are as good, or I think in many cases better than those of conventional approaches. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the incentive will become greater as the situation gets worse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So how about if we stop and continue by having conversation with you and we have a microphone on a long cord and please don't speak until you get the microphone so we capture your words on the streaming audio and about anything it doesn't have to be about stuff that we've talked about dogs who know when their masters are coming home finding four-leaf clovers mushrooms <laughs> 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 
Well, I, I just wanted to make a comment about um, the uh, workmen's, uh, this issue of uh, experiments and proving that um, alternative medicine works. I uh, uh, saw an acupuncturist uh, about three or four years ago in Vancouver, and the story was that he actually was being hired by the Workmen's Compensation Board because his treatment of uh, back problems worked and <clears throat> saved the Workmen's Compensation Board a lot of money. And it showed up in the statistics, and so Workmen's Compensation was using uh -huh. uh, this person. So that was a, so, an experiment in, based on finances that actually, you know. Well, I think that's, that's the only kind of data that will change things. Yes. You know, yeah. and it, it's the kind of data that has to be taken to the people who pay for health care to convince them that it's in, in their interest to change their policies of reimbursement in this, in this direction. Right. So that's exactly what we need. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you can show that, then it doesn't matter if acupuncture is about moving energy around the body and that pushes the buttons of scientists who don't believe in energy. It doesn't matter. If you can show that it works and saves money, mm -hmm. uh, the people who pay for health care will move in that direction. <laughs> I do have a question about um, uh, meditation and its effects on healing and health and a positive outlook. And... So I wanted to ask um, your comments on that and say just from your discussion that you were talking about um, resting and being still and that the body has a chance to heal and also the mind has a chance to heal and also comment that in, in meditation there is this experience that's been that's known to be common that joy is arising in with meditation. So would you comment on that? Sure. I, I frequently... Uh, recommend meditation to patients, but I'm selective about who I recommend that to. Um, I would not recommend that offhand to a Christian fundamentalist, for example. Um, sometimes I I recommend breathing exercises to patients. I think actually I do that all the time, and I think that uh, having people pay attention to their breathing is a very simple form of meditation, and it doesn't have to be given the name meditation. Um, I I think that. Um, almost all patients I work with, I give recommendations in the mind-body area. And uh, selected ones I will send to meditation teachers or try to interest that or suggest a book that they might read on that subject. Um, others I might simply suggest that they do breath work, which I think is a very good entry into that. Others I might uh, simply suggest relaxation techniques, maybe as a first step in that direction. But I think that work of that sort in that realm is relevant to almost all uh, medical cases, and I, I see no downside to it and many beneficial effects. Can I just add that um, it may not just be meditation, but also prayer. Far more people pray than meditate, mm -hmm. and Christian fundamentalists certainly do. And the, the, there are many studies like those collected by Koenig that show that people who have regular religious practice, this would be regular, ordinary, going-to-church type practice, right. um, on average tend to live, what is it, seven years longer than those who don't. There's a huge health benefit from religious practice and observance, ha which huge numbers of studies have shown. Isn't that right? Yes. And do you want to – some of that, though, you know, you have to tease it apart. With Seventh-day Adventists, for example, I mean, people who pray may not be – Drinking, smoking, living riotously. So mm. those other those confounding variables have to be taken account. Uh, do you want to say something about scientific fundamentalism and 
its relationship to religious fundamentalism? Oh, well, just briefly, and then we'll get back to the question. This is something we talked about the other day. At the Esalen Institute, they have a series of invitational conferences, and they've recently had a series on, uh, on fundamentalism. They've had Christian fundamentalism, Muslim fundamentalism, Jewish fundamentalism. And I suggested that to complete their series, they should have one on scientific fundamentalism, because this is an extremely powerful force in the modern world. It's the belief that science basically has all the answers already. It's just a matter of filling in the details. We know what's possible and what's not. And it leads to an extreme form of dogmatism, which I think holds back scientific research cripples the educational system, makes science boring and dull for school children and those who have... It has baleful effects, and it's a widespread phenomenon. One manifestation of this is the evidence-based medicine movement, uh, which in its most extreme forms is a... It absolutely is a form of fundamentalism. Uh, Recently, the British Medical Journal, which is more fun than most U.S. medical journals, ran a wonderful article um, uh, by a group of scientists who pointed out that there was no solid evidence base supporting the use of parachutes and jumping out of airplanes <laughs> to reduce, what was the term that they used? It was a wonderful term of... of uh, corporal morbidity, something like that. Yes. From, and uh, they suggested, they reviewed the published evidence and concluded that there was not strong scientific evidence for this and suggested that the most uh, dogmatic believers in evidence-based medicine should volunteer to participate in a double-blind, placebo-controlled <laughs> study. <laughs> yeah. uh, gentlemen, I... Um I, I belong to the club. Um, I often describe myself as a physician in recovery. Um, I practiced medicine for 18 years here in British Columbia and was totally and utterly frustrated. I, at one point, was uh, specializing in addiction medicine. And the hallmark of addiction medicine in terms of uh, helping people is counseling. So um, I went off and got my uh, certification in, in addiction medicine in the United States because you couldn't get it in Canada at that time. I came back and I was doing what I thought a very good job in terms of um, helping people into recovery, and I was doing my own work plus referral work. And within six months, I got a letter from the MSP saying that I was billing far too much counseling, and uh, if I didn't change my ways, I was going to be audited. And I wrote back and I said, well, of course I'm doing twice as much as the average person because I'm doing addiction medicine. And they wrote back and said, Doctor, we don't really care what you're doing. If you continue, you'll be audited. Now, what an audit means in BC is that you're going to lose a lot of money because they inevitably will find something. This was not a unique thing. This was something that all of my colleagues in this particular field were running into. A lot of us left the field. We simply couldn't make a living doing this. Um, I actually have retired from medicine. I'm now doing alternative medicine. I cannot practice within the college in this province, but I phoned the registrar and told him what I was doing in terms of energy medicine, and he said, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Please don't do it under the medical act because we'll have to come and audit you and (laughs) investigate you. But I think it's wonderful, and I really want to encourage you to do that. Is this something you've heard before? Well, this is, I think, a, a one facet of a much larger problem, which is that the priorities for what we pay for and what we don't for, pay for are completely crazy. Uh, that the whole trend in medicine in the States has been to cut back 
reimbursement payment for time spent with a patient, time spent at preventive activities, and more and more shift it to interventions um, that are that are immediately profitable. I, I can give you a very um, a glaring example of that, there was uh, uh, six months or eight months ago, the New York Times ran a, a, a four-part series, major stories on the type 2 diabetes epidemic in New York, which is ep- huge. And one article looked at the, the economic consequences of this for New York. And in that article, they pointed out that a number of diabetes treatment centers had gone out of business in the past few years. And there was a table that showed that for every preventive nutritional consult, every preventive eye consult, every preventive uh, foot consult that was done on a diabetic patient, these centers lost on an average of $100 to $150. For every amputation done of a diabetic limb, they made $6,000. So, I mean, that's the way it's stacked. It's stacked that way, and it's in every area that you look at, and the trend has been worse and worse in that direction. So this is one of the challenges of people practicing integrative medicine is that a lot of what we do depends on a a long initial intake visit to take a lifestyle history. Um, You can't get payment for that that makes it worth doing that. So it's you have to find creative ways of getting money. The only way that's going to change is if long term is if we can show the people who pay for health care that if they put money into that say, a, a 60 to 90-minute visit at the beginning, that there are fewer visits down the line and you save treatment costs. I mean, it's, this is, again, goes back to these. This is the type of data that we need to generate to change the way things are. Hmm. Pragmatic outcome trials. Pragmatic outcome trials, <laughs> yes. right. So um, thank you both very much for this evening. Um, you talked a little bit about religion, Rupert, and I just yeah. wondered if you could, you could comment on the recent somewhat well-reputed studies that prayer does not assist in healing and that contradicted the earlier studies we've all heard that prayer did help with healing. There have been quite a number of studies on double-blind controlled trials on prayer and healing. And what they involve is taking groups of patients, dividing them into different groups, and some are prayed for by distant people who they don't know and others are not. there's a number of some of these have given positive outcomes. Some have given non-significant outcomes. Um, the question really is, how realistic is this kind of trial? Because what you're doing is comparing one lot of people who are prayed for by strangers somewhere else who they've never met with other people who are not paid, prayed for by strangers. But probably both groups of people are being prayed for by their nearest and dearest. You can't possibly go into a hospital and say, look, the, your relative's been randomly selected to be unprayed for. <laughs> You're not allowed to pray for your mother or, or, or your husband because uh, they're in the non-prayed for group. And uh, so I think it's also a reasonable hypothesis that the prayers of their nearest and dearest are going to be more fervent and possibly more effective than those of total strangers taking part in a scientific randomized study. Um, So what you're doing is looking at an addition of of another level of prayer over a background of what may be a lot of prayer from um, people who are being prayed for anyway. So I I think the basic concept of these trials is flawed myself. I think it's interesting that some of them have given positive outcomes, and I'm not surprised that they don't all, because there's such a big component that's just not controlled for. What do you think of them, Andy? 
Well, I, I also I think it's very hard to make anything of that data. If if a person knows that they're being prayed for, then that's in the in the realm of the familiar. You know, the although for many people that itself is a stretch, but you know, for me that that certainly impacts a person's belief system, and we know that belief can activate healing. Um, if a, if a person does not know that this is being done, then then that really means that we have to, you know, rethink how consciousness works at a distance, and you know that that's a much harder stretch of the mm. paradigm. Yeah, I personally I have no problem with consciousness working at a distance because I think the evidence for telepathy is very strong. And, and if a dog can pick up when its owner decides to go home and starts waiting at the door when the end is still miles away, that shows the effect of the intention to go home having a non-local effect on observable behavior of a dog. I think in prayer, when people are praying for others, they pray with an intention, and they pray with a particular person in mind, and there could be a telepathic bond set up between them, enabling whatever happens in the prayer to work at a distance. So I personally don't have a problem with that. My problem is not with the phenomenon itself, but with the nature of these trials as designed to try and fit into the standard medical model of placebo, double-blind, controlled trials. Um, a better way of doing it might be outcome studies, simply to look at people who come from atheist families, you know, go through the, the sort of subscribers to the Skeptical Inquirer, for example, and use them as one group, um, compared with a balanced group from age, income, etc., who are members of religious congregations, and look at actually look at cases there where you can control for without having these just looking at outcomes in more natural real life situations Tara well first first of all for those of you who were here last week at the Beth Nielsen Chapman song she sang the prayers of an atheist and and she thought they were more potent from an artistic <laughs> perspective um, but my question is about brain plasticity there's, a, there's been a lot of research in that space. I know that there is at least one uh, technology company, Posit Software in Silicon Valley, working on uh, rewiring the brain around things like hearing loss and, and vision loss mm -hmm. and memory in ways we never thought were possible before. And I'm wondering if you guys had uh, experienced any of this or, or what your thoughts were. Well, first of all, my, you know, it, the, the view of brain plasticity now is so different uh, to what I was taught when I was in medical school in the late 60s. I was taught that when neurons in the brain are lost, they're lost forever, that it's all downhill from, you know, there's no, you never regenerate. And um, I, over the years, I have encountered a number of therapeutic systems that are based on the assumption that the central nervous system can learn new pathways around damaged areas. One of them is um, uh, just just uh, I mean, one is Feldenkrais work, which is I'm sure many people are familiar with. Uh, you know, this was a system invented by an Israeli nuclear physicist who had suffered a, a severe injury and uh, rehabilitated himself and developed a system uh, of of teaching the body new ways of being aware of itself in space, but it's based on the assumption that the nervous system can learn new pathways around areas of damage, and the clinical results of this are fantastic. And I have over the years sent many patients, and this is both um, you know everything from kids with brain injuries to uh, people with strokes, um, and have seen fantastic results 
uh, results that are absolutely not achieved in conventional medical settings. Uh, similarly, there is a technique in acupuncture, which is not well known here. Um, it's mostly practiced by people in China and by people trained in China. It's a system of scalp acupuncture um, that produces uh, remarkable results in stroke rehabilitation, even several years after the stroke, and is also used with phenomenal results in cerebral palsy in China, that they hospitalize kids for up to six months and they're given daily treatments. And, uh, you know, again, this is, this, these are practical demonstrations of things that in conventional medicine are assumed to be impossible. Uh, I think now there is accumulating evidence that neurons do regenerate. I mean, one of the areas of the brain that this has been shown for most recently is the hippocampus, which processes memory uh, and emotion. And, uh, you know, rather than this view that there is uh, absolute cognitive decline associated with aging, it looks as if there are ways of stimulating uh, regrowth of neurons in those areas. So I would just predict, based on what I've seen in the in the 40-some years since I've been out of medical school, that if things are moving in this direction, um, that why not uh, believe that uh, with new methods of technology and, and new ways of thinking all this, that the sky is the limit. <laughs> you know, that I think we're, we're not that far away from being able to stimulate regeneration of severed spinal cords. Uh, I think we are, you know, I can easily envision that within 20, 30, 40, 50 years that there will be techniques of stimulating um, regrowth of neural pathways or accelerating all of that. I, th I think that's all within the realm of the probable. Hmm. And I'm, it's interesting, you know, I think Rupert, uh, you know, and I very much agree that you, it's your, you know, our reality is determined by our conceptions. It's what we, what we have in here influences what we experience out there. And, uh, you know, I really do believe that unless you, unless you believe something is possible, the chance of experiencing it is pretty low. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 uh, I think this is why being in the field of someone who experiences reality a certain way or believes that something is possible, and you know, it allows you to to perceive the same thing. Uh, it was one of the most effective strategies I've found in working with patients. I can't always do it, but if I can introduce a patient to someone who has had their condition and is better, that is the most. At one stroke, it can erase all of the negative. Uh, programming that they've gotten from interaction with health experts who've told them in one way or another that they can't get better or their own belief systems. Uh, you know, it's just a very effective strategy. And I think that we're seeing a change in how people think of the brain and what it's capable of. Questions on that side of the room? Anybody over there? I'm not quite sure how to word this question. Um, you mentioned a little bit, both of you mentioned a little bit earlier that um, consciousness could be um, attached to matter. Uh, matter could, uh, the electromagnetic field could create consciousness. Maybe I don't understand that properly. And then the other view was that perhaps consciousness creates matter or organizes matter. So that has great implications if it's one or the other. Maybe it's both. But, um, for instance, if, I'd just like you to comment on this, if, uh, for instance, uh, matter organizes consciousness or creates consciousness or 
an electromagnetic field is created from matter, that would mean that when matter disintegrates, then so does consciousness, would it not? Which, okay, fine. Let's let that one go. So if um, uh, consciousness organizes matter, then when matter disintegrates, consciousness hangs around, which would mean that we've got lots of consciousness hanging around that's uh, been here for a long, long time or been around for a long, long time. I don't know where I... This is just something that uh, I thought of tonight as you were saying this. So um, perhaps you could just expand on that because you didn't say which what hmm. you believed in or what you thought. So maybe if you could, Rupert and Dr. Wheel, hmm. if you could just talk. Well, this is one of the big questions. You know, the philosopher Immanuel Kant said that there are three perennial problems of philosophy, God, freedom, and immortality. This comes under the heading of immortality. Um, the materialists believe that matter gives rise to consciousness. Therefore, when you die, your brain decays, it's all wiped out. Your memories, everything it decays. So for people who are committed to a materialist worldview, that's it. You know, it fits very well with a kind of atheist and rather pessimistic view of the world. And scientific materialism. And scientific materialism. That's the standard. This is the standard view within science still, which is working underneath under the philosophy of materialism still, most of it. Um, the idea that consciousness is totally primary is traditionally called idealism, and it's the idea that consciousness generates matter. Um, and the idea that it's an interplay of the two is usually called dualism, uh, which is generally considered unsatisfactory. I mean, Cartesian dualism has been the dominant philosophy in the West since the 17th century when Descartes put forward the idea that the mind and the body interact in a small region of the brain. He thought the pineal gland. Nowadays, dualists would say it's the cerebral cortex. It's moved a couple of inches. Uh, but it's the same theory. And that when you die, then this mind, which is non-material anyway, survives. So that's an attractive Philosophy. The trouble with it as a scientific hypothesis is that if you can't say what this non-material mind consists of or how it interacts or what it does, from a scientific point of view, it's as good as non-existent. So the materialists say, oh, well, forget about it. It's meaningless. No one can say what this ineffable substance is. So it doesn't do anything that we can measure. And so, so you get this rather sterile debate going backwards and forwards. And my own view is that... For, is that the mind is associated with the brain as a system of fields are associated with a material object, just as your cell phone has fields that extend beyond the phone and a magnet has fields that extend beyond the magnet. The fields of the mind extend beyond the brain. I also think that memories are not stored in the brain but are retrieved by a process I call morphic resonance. The brain's more like a receiver than a video recorder. It's more like a TV receiver picking up influences, in this case from the past. To explain why I think these things would require, you know, a, an entire workshop such as the one I recently <laughs> gave at Hollyhock. But, um, so I can't, I'm afraid, explain it all now why I think these. But if it's true that the, the memories are not stored in the brain, the brain tunes into them, then there's the capacity to re retrieve memories may not decay with the brain, but there still has to be some kind of center of consciousness that could tune into them of a non-material kind. So this view in science leaves that question open. It doesn't say you do survive bodily death or that you don't. The materialist view leaves the question closed. It says, forget it. All memories are wiped out at death. All religious beliefs about reincarnation, 
the Last Judgment, uh, Purgatory, etc., etc. All of these are necessarily illusory and false. So um, it's one of the most difficult problems in science and philosophy. So I don't think we're going to solve it this evening, but I think it's very much an open question. I my feeling is that you can't prove uh, one or another of these models, uh, but it's a question of if you try them out, which one gives you greater power to explain, predict, and control phenomena, and which is more fun. <laughs> and whenever I've done that in any field that I've worked, the view that consciousness is primary works better for me and also creates a universe in which it's more fun to be. Um, and it has better explanatory power um, that I find that when I, when I look at things that way, I'm able to explain more of my experience and understand it and ultimately have better control over the world that I move through. So on a practical level, I find that to be a more useful model. Uh, and I've done that, for instance, there was a period when I did a lot of research with psychoactive drugs. And look at, using that model explained what I saw in laboratory situations and non-laboratory situations much better than the, the other view, which is the view of pharmacologists, that drugs cause experiences, uh, for example. But in many areas that I've worked in, including medicine, that I just find that view of consciousness being primary, it gives me greater explanatory and predictive power and uh, ultimately makes things more interesting. There's a question. Uh, Rupert, I'm wondering if you could take another run at that same question from the perspective of quantum mechanics and the notion that the position of a particle and hence the existence of the physical world is completely dependent on its being observed and what that the implications of that are for our, our notions of consciousness or awareness uh, particularly the awareness of seemingly inert objects with each other well <clears throat> i've myself i don't put too much emphasis on the thing in quantum physics about observations requiring observers because I think it's obvious. Um, it's obvious in every realm that observations depend on observers. They're, um, they, they're mutually dependent. When physicists talk about the observation of particles, the, they're really talking about the measurement of things in physical apparatus. And in these rather foreshortened arguments that physicists put forward it's as if the whole universe consists of electrons in measuring apparatuses and the mind of a physicist constructing the experiment it sort of leaves out everything else um, so when people generalize from that you get extreme views like the whole universe is brought into being by our observing it and so forth I think this is terribly anthropocentric. First of all, there's thousands of other species of animals with eyes and other sense organs that are observing the world and secondly, every time a quantum, a chemical reaction occurs, in a sense, the molecule that reacts with another one is observing that molecule and interacting with it. There's a, so every kind of interaction leads to a quantum change. And so in that sense, every kind of interaction is a sort of observation. Um, so I, I think that putting human consciousness in this, especially the consciousness of physicists, in this incredibly important position is exaggerating. And... Um, so I, do, I think the interactive process 
is really important. And the school of Eastern philosophy I like most is Kashmiri Shaivism, which says that reality consists of the observer, the observed, or the knower, the known, and the means of knowledge. Everything is explained in terms of this Trinitarian system, this threefold system, the knower, the known, and the means of knowledge. And I think that that really is, a, is something that could apply to quantum physics and indeed to most of reality. But I think we need to get away from the privileged position of human observers in laboratories and see that every kind of interaction um, which involves a quantum change may involve to some degree th those elements. Yeah, it's wonderful to listen to you both. And um, it occurred to me, uh, and there's a question in here somewhere, and it has to do with, is there a morphic resonance or is there a resonance that's possible with the way a question is phrased, for instance, or the way the person's voice is? Um, I was curious when Dana asked if anyone had any questions, put their hands up. I'm wondering if she said, if anyone doesn't have any questions, put your hands up. <laughs> and when Andy asked those deans of medicine uh, if they would want to incorporate uh, complementary medicine, um, you know, if they didn't want to incorporate it, put your hands up. Which then takes me to the, the thought that... Um, I read a study once when a placebo was given by a trusted doctor, it was shown that it actually seemed to have more likelihood of working. Hmm. And then I looked over and I saw Siobhan, and I thought about singing and music, and I wondered if there's any research done, is there anything done on sound and the resonance that's done with that? In other words, if I'm in a hospital bed and Siobhan brings her choir over and sings to me this this beautiful chorus that I happen to really resonate with, is, it, is there any studies, is there anything done on that, that that, in fact, could affect and support mm -hmm. healing? On, on that last point, um, there is, I have done some work with the American Music Therapy Association, uh, which is an organized group, and uh, they publish research, they draw on research, I'd say it's a field that's small but growing, and and there is, I think, enough evidence there that should stimulate other research. I think that there's no question that sound has profound effects on the the organism and particularly on the nervous system. Um, and there are, I mean, I could give you a lot of uh, just experiences and observations that that I've made of that. I just one briefly, I'll describe. Uh, this oh, I don't know how long ago this was, but um, some time ago I was at the Field Museum in Chicago, and it was their, uh, I think it was called Founders Night. I had a friend who was curator of botany there, and I was uh, visiting him, and he took me to this evening thing where they had their, I don't know how many most important donors in, and they put on various uh, shows for them. And one of the things that they did, they had a, um, a phenomenal uh, antique uh, gamelan ensemble from Indonesia, and they found a a team of gamelan players, and they brought in to perform. There were many pieces, and we were all crowded into this central hall, and they played a few things, but one 
piece that they played was a, I think it was a Balinese war, war chant. And uh, it said it was to prepare people for battle. And I, I remember, I don't, I, all I remember was it was a fairly simple melody that was repeated over and over and louder and louder. I felt adrenaline surges in my body. And uh, when they were finished, I was ready to smash things. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a very dramatic effect on mind and body. And that's just a, a, a gross example. Um, I think we're largely unaware of how sound affects us. I think it's a major influence in our environment, both for good and ill. And it's something that has been somewhat, but relatively little taken advantage of in, in therapy. Uh, yes. My question is as a medical consumer, I guess, and, uh, just in terms of how you think the progress is overall, I guess, in UK, the States, and Canada, to help the patient or somebody that's going through a medical crisis to um, help them through the process of the amazing amount of choices there are out there, uh, both in alternative medicine and standard medicine? Well, let me comment on the US and Canada. Um, there... The consumer movement in both countries is very strong and has been the factor that has produced change in institutional medicine. In the U.S., I think uh, this is really a mainstream movement now. And uh, the response from academic medicine is coming along. There's a group called the uh, Consortium of Academic Health Centers for Integrative Medicine that has now over 30 member medical schools. There are, I think, two now, two or three member schools in Canada and the rest in the U.S. They're some of the leading medical schools and involvement of deans and chancellors. Um, I, the uh, patterns of reimbursement are slowly shifting but really are going to depend on these kinds of outcomes trials that we mentioned. Um, in um, Canada, the province where most movement has been made is of all places Alberta. Uh, the two medical schools there are the leaders in the integrative medicine movement here. And uh, that seems to have something to do with the amount of money available in Alberta and uh, a kind of, um, I don't know, there's a sort of, uh, I guess, more of a libertarian spirit there that goes along with conservatism, much like Arizona where I live. Uh, at any rate, there's significant progress there, whereas the schools on the coasts are relatively slow to move. Um, I, there are some countries in the world where this movement is um, even stronger. I think in Europe, the main center is Scandinavia at the moment. Um, really a, lo a lot of activity there. But compared to some countries in China, for example, today, in all major Chinese cities, in all the big academic hospitals, all cancer patients routinely get integrative treatment. They get chemotherapy, radiation surgery, and Chinese herbal medicine and acupuncture. Uh, and the Chinese experience is that this enables them to use lower doses of chemotherapy and radiation, have better side effect profiles, and better outcomes. Um, in India, the you know, where there are so many different medical systems that are practiced and organized and taught often a, a in large Indian universities that, that will have a, 
an allopathic medical school, a homeopathic medical school, an Ayurvedic medical school, an Unani, Islamic Muslim, all on the same campus. And uh, two years ago, the Indian federal government set up a federal agency to regulate and set standards for the practice of all these other systems. And I think the Indian government recognizes that it, it, it is economically impossible to deliver high-tech allopathic medicine to everyone there. So there's great incentive to formalize and make these other systems of medicine available, integrate them. So I think you see different, you know, around the world. I think the U.S. is uh, strongly in the lead in bringing this into academic teaching, developing curriculum. You know, what we're, what I work on at the University of Arizona, I think we're, we're really, we have a goal set, which I think is quite realistic, of developing a formal curriculum, uh, maybe 300 hours, I don't know what it will wind up being, in integrative medicine that will be made a required accredited part of all residency training in all fields. Um, and I think we'll be able to do that. Hmm. So you can comment hmm. on the UK. Well, I, in the UK, there's rather patchy progress. The main force for integrative medicine is the Prince of Wales Institute for Integrative Medicine. And it's interesting that <coughs> the main figure in public life who supports the kinds of things that we're talking about here, and indeed most of the kinds of things I believe in, is not part of our political system as such, but the Prince of Wales. And his views are not re received very well by many members of the establishment, <coughs> even though... <coughs> as heir to the throne. He's the very, at the very peak of the establishment. Um, he's doing a lot to encourage integrative medicine in Britain. In the National Health Service, our socialized medicine system, it's, the progress is patchy. In some areas where individuals have taken an initiative, doctors' clinics offer counseling in different um, methods of treatment. Many doctors go on weekend courses in acupuncture and so on and offer it themselves, which perhaps isn't the best way of doing it because they often don't really know the basis of the system. There's been a tendency for them to try and take it over. Um, <clears throat> but I think in view of what Andy just said, um, I think it's even more important for us to find models in Britain and the US and Canada um, of really good ways of providing these services because in countries like India and China, they normally look to us for models. They don't, the Indian, I lived in India for a long time and Indians are very reluctant to create their own model for things because they defer in so many ways to what happens in the West. And they're the most eminent researchers aspire to go to the West. And if they don't fit into the kind of system here, their careers wouldn't be so good. So, um, if we have really good models, they're in a much better position to implement them. And if we had a good research model, they'd be in a much better position actually to do it. Outcome trials in India would be brilliant. I mean, there's so many medical systems there. There's such a strong economic incentive to cut costs and have effective outcome trials. The more we could do to encourage this research in India, China, and elsewhere, the better. Mm.